0: Let's talk hoops, let's talk crossovers, let's talk downs, let's talk hoops, let's talk rumor, let's talk opinions, let's talk truth, let's talk future, let's talk present, let's talk past, fundamentals and flash, me running the flow, stay gold, running the show like a young Steve Nash, I'd like to welcome all of you to the Great Point Podcast.
1: This is The Great Point Podcast. I'm Adam Stanko. Before we get started with a guest I am thrilled to talk to, I wanted to remind you to subscribe to The Great Point Podcast on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this pod. That way, you can listen to episodes as soon as they're released. Now, it could be argued that Dan Dickout is the best player in Gonzaga history. Despite only playing with the Zags for two years, he was the school's first-ever first-team All-American, He's sixth all-time in NCAA career Mm three-point percentage. And he was drafted in the first round of the 2002 NBA draft. He's now back in Spokane, Washington, and his presence is still being felt on the college basketball scene, calling college basketball games for the Pac-12 Network, and even making the occasional appearance in the basketball tournament, trying to win millions for Gonzaga alums. Dan Dickow, welcome to the Great Point Podcast
0: ah uh, great to be on i appreciate it it's always good to reconnect so hopefully all is well in your world
1: yes yes it is it is dan i i always like to start off the podcast by asking folks what is your earliest basketball memory
0: wow that is uh that is a, a great loaded question you know i think probably two of my earliest memories would be uh growing up in portland um we had a basketball hoop on our on a tree in our backyard. Uh, that's the first time I really remember, um, you know, basketball uh, becoming something that I looked forward to every single day. Uh, also had one in our basement, but then, you know, I, I think the first big, big time memory that I have of, of being kind of outside your little bubble as a kid, of being able to shoot hoops in your backyard, your basement, your driveway, whatever it was, uh, it was the very first Blazer game that I had a chance to go to. And I think I was about – I was probably five or six years old. And back in those days, the Blazers played in the Memorial Coliseum where it seated I want to say, twelve thousand six sixty six, And they sold out games for about 18 straight years. So if you got a ticket to a Blazer game, it was like gold in Portland. And so um, I remember the, the chance I got to go to my first Blazer game. I still have a picture where I'm kind of standing behind – Uh, the Blazers bench work while guys are going through warmups and Sam Bowie of all guys is running behind me in the picture. It's pretty cool.
1: (laughs) That is, that's phenomenal. Uh, When did you first realize that you were, you were pretty good at this game?
0: Um, You know, I think I started playing on a, on an organized team in third grade, which is kind of how the YMCA did it in, in Vancouver, Washington at the time. And I always just kind of sensed that I picked up on things quicker than everybody else, uh, that I tended to score more points than other people. I always tended to guard the other team's best player and I would have a, a decent amount of success kind of shutting them down. Um, you know, but I think a lot of it came down to the fact that when I was gr- young and growing up, I just wanted to go outside and play basketball. Uh, I wanted to, to shoot in my driveway. Uh, if it was at school, and other kids were, were wanting to play kickball or flag football or whatever it was. I, I wanted to play basketball. And so I think when I start, finally I had the opportunity to be on a team in third grade, you know I could tell that, you know what, some of these things that we're working on in practice or some of the things that happen in games, I just kind of react to it rather than kind of looking around like, hey, what's next? What do I do? Um, but no kid, I don't care who you are can say that hey i'm going to be in the nba at the age of third grade or i'm going to be a high school star or play in college i think the thing that kind of stuck with me is that i loved it uh more than anybody could imagine i loved it anybody more than any of the other kids that i was friends with at the time and even at a young age i was willing to put in the time and effort to get better at it because i loved it so much um but i think when i really kind of could start to tell that, hey, you know what, I might have a chance to to play, you know, at the college level, would have been probably around eighth grade when, when, you know, started to really stand out from people. I was still smaller uh, because I hadn't hit my growth spurt yet, but, you know, I was starting to be able to see things quicker than other kids could do it. Uh, People couldn't take advantage of my size because my skill level was good enough, and so about that time, I kind of set the goal that, You know, I do want to play high-level college basketball, Um, you know, and every kid sets a goal and a dream when they're seven, eight years old. Hey, I'm going to play in the NBA. But you also have to be realistic in your goals and your dream setting uh, to be able to potentially reach that high, high high-level dream. And so I realized and I knew that, hey, college is the first step, and I need to, to, to be able to become good enough to have a chance to play. So I think I realized at about eighth grade I might. And then after, I think it would have been after my sophomore year of high school, uh, I started going on some travel, AAU tournament type teams. And then I started really seeing that, hey, I'm competing not only with kids in in the Portland, Seattle, Northwest, but I'm hanging with kids from all over the country, you know, and and they're kind of taking a backseat to me at different times.
1: Right. I want to get into your high school career and, and your recruiting, but I'm always curious about... People who have passion for the game. I, I obviously love basketball. Um, I know you're a, a hoop head at heart. What do you think it is that that you love so much about the game?
0: Ah, uh, you know, it's, it's there's so many different things. I think one of the things uh, is that it's different every single time you step on the floor, regardless uh, if you're playing a great team or a mediocre team or or, or a low level team. It's going to be different, and they're going to try to throw challenges at you uh, defensively to kind of disrupt your offensive rhythm. And then defensively, you got to prepare for hey, this team does this offensively, these are their strengths, and you want to try to take their strengths away from them and push them towards their weaknesses. Um, But I think the game of basketball, when it's played at the highest level, is the most read and react type sport that is out there. Um, And so, so much of it just falls back to. are you prepared? Is your skill level uh, what it needs to be? Are, are you comfortable in any setting, whether it's you're getting trapped on the pick and roll, or they're they're kind of throwing a zone defense at you? It just comes back to re- under seeing the floor, reading the, what's going on, reacting to it. And the more you work at it, the more time you've put into it, the easier it becomes. And the game's never easy. I mean, even at the highest level for guys like you know LeBron and Kobe and Michael Jordan, the game's never easy. They just make it look easy and they make it look easy because of their preparation.
1: Right. That's really interesting. So back to your high school stretch there. You talked about, you know, sophomore year, you're starting to realize where you are, um, AAU wise in comparison with other kids. When did the recruiting really start to ramp up for you?
0: Uh you know, it was uh it would have been Uh, Going into my junior year of high school. So after the sophomore year, I started playing on some of those uh, Kind of travel teams and I started having the ability to play in in some higher level tournaments on the west coast But again when you're coming from Vancouver, Washington, you know, that's not really a a huge recruiting hotbed You know, I mean the Northwest has done an unbelievable job over the years of developing and creating players from Portland and Seattle Uh, but there's still always a kind of a question mark about a lot of kids. So I do remember it was uh, it would have been a pump Best of the West camp down in L.A. And it was my first time playing in front of uh, lots and lots of college uh, coaches uh, and kind of being in an atmosphere like, okay, you know what, this is a bigger deal than I'm used to. Um, <laughs> but that's when, you know, the competitor in you just kind of clicks And you're like, you know what? It's just basketball. Let's go play hard and see what happens. And I played well for the three or four days, and I was able to be selected to one of the All-Star Games. And then I just remember um, in the All-Star Game that I was selected to, I think they had three All-Star Games that year, uh, I missed my first shot, and then I think I made my last 10 or 11 shots in a row the rest of the game. And I kind of remember walking off the floor thinking, oh, wow. I I just had a heck of a game. That went well. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, uh, my high school coach, who was also coaching my, my AAU team that was going to go on the, uh, later in that month and plan some tournaments, he started getting, uh, you know, bombarded with calls from different coaches. And the first school that really reached out to me was the University of Washington. Uh, it was, um, it was Ricky McKay, who's kind of been all over the place. And Ray Jackledy were the first two college coaches that pinpointed me as a guy that, you know what? Not only can he play college basketball, but I think he can play at the Pac-10, which is now the Pac-12 level. And so those two guys were kind of really the guy, first two that really kind of targeted me as being a guy that had that potential. And then it just kind of grew from there over the the next couple of weeks during that evaluation period that summer. Uh, where going into now my junior year, I, I knew that I, I was going to have some opportunities to to play. Somewhere, As long as I kept improving.
1: So tell me about your decision then. I think some people don't even remember that you played at Washington. But tell me about your decision then to choose to, to play at the University of Washington.
0: You know, there's days I don't even remember I had played at Washington because, uh, you know, I didn't I was not myself. I, I didn't play the game uh, the way that I grew up playing. And I didn't play the, the game at all in the way that people remember watching me at Gonzaga. You know, it was one of those things where Gonzaga hadn't established itself. Um, and if you were a good player on the West Coast and you had goals and dreams and aspirations to, you know, play in an NCAA tournament and maybe have a chance to play in the NBA, you just knew, OK, you know what? I got to go to Pack Pac-10, Pack 12 school. Uh, and so that's kind of where my, my thought process lied. Uh, it ended up. My final schools ended up coming down to Washington. Uh, I had some interest in Washington State because Kevin Eastman was a the coach there. Oregon State came in late. Oregon came in late. I really wanted to go to Oregon. That was the school that I kind of really had pinpointed, wanting to go because of of having been to a couple games at Mack Court uh, early in my high school career. Um, but they didn't recruit me under Jerry Green, so so that was a disappointment to me. USC and Stanford uh, also were were options. And then the couple West Coast Conference schools that I considered strongly were University of Portland because, you know, I grew up 15 minutes from that from their arena and their campus, and it would have been nice to stay home. But then uh, the other pack, uh, West Coast school is Pepperdine, and it was because of Lorenzo Romar and his ability to recruit and, and kind of, um, you know, share a vision for what he was trying to do at, uh, Pepperdine, that really kind of made me interested in, in Pepperdine. But at the end of the day, I felt like I needed to go to a Pac-12 school. I thought there was a big need at University of Washington. And I developed a, a really close uh, bond with, with Coach Ray, Jack Letty, who unfortunately left before I even got to campus to, to take over at North Dakota State.
1: So you talked about how you weren't the same player when you were at Washington that we that we grew to see nationally. Once you got to Gonzaga, you averaged 3.8 points a game as a freshman, 97, 98 season at Washington. Um, Why don't you think that during your stretch, you spent two years at Washington, why don't you think during your time as a Husky, you weren't playing with that freedom, let's say?
0: Well, I think there was a couple things. You know, I think uh, we had a pretty experienced basketball team as far as age, I don't think they were experienced as far as. Uh, you know, having won games before I got there because they hadn't made the NCAA tournament. My freshman year, we made the NCAA tournament for the first time in, I think it was like 15, 16 years, we made it to the Sweet 16 and lost to UConn on a buzzer beater by Rip Hamilton. But I, I think if you look at it, uh, you know, there's always a bigger adjustment than a lot of people understand going from high school to college basketball, and. Very few guys can make a seamless transition, especially at the point guard position. The ones that do, you know, they're special. You know, Baron Davis was my same year in high school. Well, Baron made a pretty pretty big uh, impact on UCLA right off the bat. But anybody that saw Baron knew he was special. McDonald's All-American, ended up, you know, playing 12, 13 years in the NBA. Um, you know, but I don't think uh, I physically or, you know, just I don't think I was ready to make that kind of impact. And we had an older team who wasn't necessarily going to take um, and give leadership responsibilities to a freshman point guard. The other two point guards that we had on the roster were both seniors. And, you know, in hindsight, you know, I was better than both those guys. And at the time, I thought I was better than those guys. And I actually knew I was better than those guys. Uh, But Bob Bender was very uh, loyal to his seniors, Chris Thompson and Jan Wooten. They were guys that he felt um, were probably better than me defensively, which I'm sure they were at that stage of my career. Um, but I felt that gave beat up, you know, some, some benefits on the offensive end. But so many times as a young player, you kind of get stuck. I don't want to make a mistake. I don't want to make a mistake. And so that was one reason I didn't necessarily play my game there. But if you look at the numbers, I shot the ball extremely well. I just didn't uh, do the things creatively off the bounce and, and getting in the paint and creating for others that maybe uh, I could have shown. But at the same time, you know what? It was a it was a great learning experience and introduction to college basketball. And I mean, you can't take away the fact that I played on a Sweet 16 uh, team my freshman year. That's pretty cool.
1: So there was a part of you though that felt like I can't really showcase my entire skill set because. If I don't perform in my limited minutes, then I'm going to be pulled. Was that was that sort of the mindset for you at that point?
0: I think that's that's absolutely fair to say. I think the majority of freshmen in college basketball think that way. Um, You know, and I think the offense that that UW ran uh, didn't give me as much uh, ability to make plays as as what I ended up getting at Gonzaga. You know, Bob Bender was, uh, you know. he did not teach the game uh, offensively as well as, as I think coach few did and does. And so the opportunities came much differently. And we also had very, very established players. Like I had mentioned that, um, you know, Todd McCulloch uh, was one of our, was one of our cornerstones, seven foot center play for seven or eight years in the NBA with Philly. Mm-hmm. So we knew that, you know, we were going to be a, a inside oriented team. We had Patrick family who, uh another seven footer that, you know, uh, played big minutes. And and then, you know, we had some guards and some wings that that were very capable um to get some things done at the Pac twelve level, Donald Watts and Deion Luton. They they were guys that were good enough to have success in that conference, but they weren't good enough to dominate. Um but myself and, and Michael Johnson who was another freshman, we never established ourselves well enough and early enough to kind of take those minutes which again you know in, in college basketball unless as a freshman your head and shoulders better than somebody you're probably not going to you're not going to get the the opportunities and, and the and the freedom the ability to do things that you're used to until you prove it
1: your sophomore year you average just under five points a game you only play 13 games uh before before getting injured Take me through that period of your life. You get injured, and then how much of your mindset is, I need to go somewhere else?
0: Well, the thing that most people don't understand or don't remember um, is I broke my foot in the summer leading up to the sophomore season. And I ended up not uh, having much of a summer at all that year, working out-wise. Um, and my whole entire goal and my whole entire plan and process was prepare and get ready for the season because I saw a huge opportunity in front of me. I, I had the ability to, to be a starting point guard at the University of Washington. And if you look at the numbers, I think I started 12 of those 13 games that sophomore year before we realized that, you know what, my foot got was broken again. I've got other issues going on, and so we had to shut it down 13 games in Uh, after the pain just became too much. I mean, I was spending close to an hour in the training room before practice just to get ready to practice and close to an hour after practice to minimize and manage the pain. And so I remember clearly the last game I played for UW, we were on the Arizona trip, and I'm supposed to guard Jason Terry. And at the time, Jason Terry and Allen Iverson were the two fastest players uh, i had ever seen and or at the in the college basketball game mm-hmm. and i was supposed to guard jason terry and as quick as he was and i'm trying to play on a one foot and another foot being broken it just wasn't happening so i kind of had a heart-to-heart with with the trainer after the game and said look we got to figure this foot out there's something going on we and so we decided to get x-rays and we got back to to the seattle and we realized you know what i did have a fracture on my navicular, and I also had a bone spur, and I had a something else going on with my calcaneus, which is your heel bone. And so I essentially was done that day, and I had to get I got surgery a couple days later, and realized it was I basically had three surgeries and one on my foot. Uh, and at that point, you're like, okay, well, you know what, my season's done. Let's focus in on next year and get ready for next year. All the while knowing that you know what. I don't know if this is the place for me. I don't know if, if this coaching staff is the coaching staff for me. I don't know if the school is for me because it was overwhelming. University of Washington is a great school, great school, but thirty five, forty thousand 40,000 students. I mean, 400 kids in a class. No one's going to care if you miss a class here or there. So I find my found myself, although getting good grades and being a good student, you don't go to class because no one's checking. <laughs> no right. one knows. And kind of just uh, – realized you know what maybe this isn't the place for me and at that point you know i i really kind of took a step back and watched how the season progressed at u-dub and also paid closer attention to uh a number of other programs in particular gonzaga at the time because i was really close friends with richie Fromm, who i grew up kind of workout buddies with uh one of my high school teammates that gourd was red shirting there um that year and Casey Calvary was a teammate of mine on AAU teams, and he was a freshman playing there. And lo and behold, that's the year that they make their run to the Elite Eight where Casey tips it in uh, against Florida, and they end up losing to, to UConn in the, in the Elite Eight. But all the while, I'm kind of thinking, is UW the place for me? I'm praying about it. I'm thinking about it. I'm talking to, you know, my parents some my high school coaches and trying to think things through. And then Gonzaga just – bursts onto the scene and and, you know I'm thinking to myself these are my buddies over here they're playing Mm -hmm. on national stage they're improving as individuals they're playing on a team that you know becoming the darling of the country and it looks like they're going to be set up to be good down the road maybe that's where I need to go and kind of you know took a leap of faith um, and a lot of prayer and a lot of thinking on it. But at, at a certain point around spring break, about a week after we lost the NCAA tournament, uh, I realized I needed to transfer. And there was only two schools that I looked at transferring to. Uh, they were Gonzaga and the other one was St. Louis because Lorenzo Romar had become the head coach there after leaving Pepperdine.
1: During the process, how much were your know, – because – Coaches always seem to know when a player's not interested and looking to leave and go elsewhere. How much were other schools reaching out and trying to get in touch and trying to convince you to transfer to their schools as well?
0: Really not at all. You know, and I think the reason was is it it was a different day and age, uh, college basketball. There wasn't Twitter, there wasn't Facebook, Instagram, all this stuff. Um, You know, there was – no smartphone. So, I mean, you didn't have access to other players on other teams and, and coaches uh, as easily as you have now. You didn't, you had AAU coaches and you had high school coaches looking out for their players and their former players, but not to the extent, I think that it happens now, always kind of looking at, Hey, what, what, what can my guy get, where can my guy get to a better situation? Um right. You know, so I think uh, it was much different then than it would be now, that's for sure.
1: All right, so you decide to go to Gonzaga, um, and you're playing for Mark Few. You you sit out the, the 1999-2000 year. Gonzaga goes to the Sweet 16 that year, and I was watching some old game film of you in, in preparation of this interview, and it was a game during your senior year at Gonzaga, but Jay Billis was talking about your transfer year and he said, you know, this is not the same kid that I saw at Washington. And he talked about the development you made during your transfer year during that broadcast. So tell me about that development and and what that year was like sitting and watching, you know, your future teammates in action and having the season that they did.
0: Well, I think it was the most important year I had in my career. Uh, without a doubt. I think what it did was it allowed me to physically catch up uh, to where I needed to be if I was going to compete and have success at the college level. I've always been small. Uh, I've been pretty much the smallest player on every team I've ever been on. And so that year in the weight room was the first year that really my weight room workouts and the speed and agility quickness workouts finally kicked in and I could tell a difference being made. Um, So that was one thing. The other thing was You know, I I didn't have the concern or the worry of, like, okay, I'm going to push myself, but then I'm going to hold off just a little bit because I got a game tomorrow, and I might play some minutes. So it became literally every practice was my game. And the guys that I was going up against in practice were unbelievable in uh, helping me to to, to prepare that way. You know, Matt Santangelo was – WCC player of the year basically for two years so I'm going up against him in practice every single day you know he was a borderline NBA prospect at the time uh so I felt I had something to prove every single day Mike Nilsson, um who kind of was sixth man for for a lot of those couple of those teams he's probably in all honesty the best defender I've ever played against in my life six five 225 uh unbelievable reaction just tough nose grit and I'd have to go against him in practice every day or I'd be going against Richie Fromm who you know played four years in the NBA and he's 6'5", 6'6", with length and athleticism. And so I knew I kind of had to bring it every single day in practice because I had to prove to Coach Few and the rest of the staff that, hey, I'm your guy for next year. And so I literally had a game every single day in practice against those guys. Um, and the, the other thing is, you know, the emphasis on player development at Gonzaga was much, much different than it was under Coach Bender's staff, and, and that really helped me. And Coach Hugh also really kind of put me in situations where I was tested in practice uh, day after day. Some days I'd be the point guard, and he'd really want me to focus on doing this. Or the next day, you know, I would be on the scout team, and I would be their, their shooting guard. That you know, did an unbelievable job of coming off screens. And the next day I would be back to being a point guard who uh, was great off the bounce and I'd have to try to get him to paint. So he was good at really finding different angles and different ways uh, for me to create and, and improve in my game.
1: All right, so you finish up that transfer year, and now all of a sudden you're in position as as the starter on Gonzaga And it must have felt for you like it was the first time in a long time in which, okay, you're feeling in a comfort zone and you have an unbelievable year. You're averaging 22 points a game, 7.4 assists, shooting 48% from three. What was that season like for you? You
0: know, I think a lot of it was a, a big sigh of relief. Like, wow, I'm back doing what I want to do and I am playing college basketball and I'm starting to have success. But it was also it was a challenge because, you know, you had just graduated graduated Richie from Mike Nelson, Matt Santangelo, guys that got Gonzaga to become a nationally known name uh, with an Elite Eight and a Sweet Sixteen and, and to be honest with you, people weren't were expecting Gonzaga to fall off. You know, the only guy that they really knew who was there anymore was Casey Calvary. And I kind of took it on, on my shoulders, thinking to myself, you know what? Forget that. We're not, (laughs) we're not going to let this thing slide. And so I kind of really took a lot of it upon myself. Like, Hey, look, we're not going to let this thing die. Let's keep it going. And I had confidence that, that we could keep it going. And obviously we did.
1: All right, so that junior year, you make the run in 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 the Sweet Sixteen. What was it like actually playing game to game? Um, you know, you've touched on it, but just Mark Few as a coach in game. What's that experience like?
0: Yeah, I think one of the things Coach Few does better than a lot of other coaches I've been around is he's a next play type of guy. You know, so many coaches. You know they're doing that dancing on the sideline. They're getting fired up and screaming at their guys for a mistake that just happened. Well, what is that going to do? The play is over. He kind of has that next play mon- man- mantra that you know what, wipe it away. We'll fix it later during film and practice. Even though he doesn't tell you to spur the moment, he just get rid of it. Forget it. Play's done. Move on to the next play. Because if you let things fester in that setting, all of a sudden, that one mistake can can turn into two, and two turns into three, three turns into four, and all of a sudden, you know, that might be, you know, two turnovers. That might be a missed rotation defensively. That might be being in the wrong spot offensively so you don't create great spacing and give your your teammate an ability to, uh, to get an open look. And so I think that's the thing that he is really impressed upon me is that it's just next play, next play. No matter if it was a good play, bad play, something just happened, move on to the next one.
1: So in a sense, it almost sounds like he was the perfect coach for you coming off the situation that you had just endured at Washington.
0: Absolutely. I, I completely agree with that. I mean he he pushed me, um and he also held me accountable. Uh but he also uh, build, built my confidence back up from where, where it could have been. You know, when you leave, you know, a Pac-12, Pac-10, Pac-12 school, a lot of people, oh, he wasn't good enough. He wasn't going to cut it anyways. Oh, the kid they recruited after him was going to take his spot anyways. And I never felt that way. Um, I just felt like I needed a fresh start somewhere else, and that place needed to be Gonzaga. And so, you know, he, he, he really kind of installed those things in me.
1: All right, now while you're at Gonzaga, before we get to your, your senior year, um, you obviously crossed paths with the most famous graduate from Gonzaga of all time, and that's John Stockton. Uh, when did you first meet John Stockton?
0: Uh, that would have been the fall of my Richard year. So, you know, John was still playing in the NBA that, at that time. And, you know, he would he would come play open gym with us, pick up every, I mean, basically it would be Monday through Thursday. He'd play pickup with us. And, you know, I'm new on campus. I'm a shirt, And, you know, the first time John's in the gym, I'm like, okay, so this is – they're not joking. He does come back and play pickup here. And <laughs> I'm a little bit nervous because he's one of my favorite players growing up. You know, some of my favorite players growing up were obviously Michael Jordan, uh, Pete Maravich, but then also John Stockton, Chris Mullen, Tim Hardaway, Clyde Drexler, uh, Jerome Kersey, some of those guys. But, you know, I just walk up and introduce myself. And I said, hi, I'm I'm Dan. I'm, I'm a wretcher here. I just transferred from Uni- University of Washington. And he extends his hand. And he goes, hi, I'm John Stockton. And I'm thinking to myself, <laughs> <laughs> you don't have to tell me who you are. You're only one of the best basketball players on the planet right now. Uh, and so that was the first time that I got a chance to meet him. Uh, but the thing that impressed anybody who was around the program right away was the fact that, you know, he was – Still in the NBA, he had nothing to prove, but he was playing as hard as any of the, the college guys trying to improve their game, and he was taking it as serious as anybody, setting back picks on guys, you know, rotating defensively, talking, you know, uh, finding the open man, setting screens, just doing everything that you saw him doing for the Utah Jazz. He was doing an open gyms with Gonzaga. It was awesome.
1: That is, that's pretty wild. How much did he make your game better?
0: Quite a bit, you know, he, he, I got to know John over the, the course of my three years of playing at Gonzaga and, um, you know, we were, we were completely different players as far as, you know, I was a little bit more aggressive looking to score. I probably was a little bit, you know, more flashier with the ball, with my ball handling and, and different things. But, you know, the thing that he always tried to impress was make the play, make the play, make the simple play, you know, and there's a uh, one time I remember. You know, just sitting there kind of talking to him about the game and some different things. And um, he was talking about one move that I had made a couple times in open gym earlier that day. And essentially what it came down to was your jump shot's great, but why'd you go behind your back twice before you shot it? Just keep it simple. Just get to your jump shot as quickly as you can. Yeah, there's going to be times you might need it, but if you don't need it, don't use it. Just get right into your stuff. So that would have, uh, that was uh, something that kind of he impressed upon me early on in some of our conversations.
1: That is phenomenal. Um, your senior year uh, is when you, listen, I mean, you had a wonderful junior year and started to make noise nationally. Uh, certainly the program was already making noise nationally, but everyone knew who you were by the time you hit your senior year. You know, you average over 24 points a game. You end up winning West Coast Conference Player of the Year. Um, incredible stat to look back on. You led the conference in three-point field goal attempts and effective field goal percentage, which just shows what kind of you know zone that you were in despite shooting so many, so many shots from deep. Uh, Gonzaga's first, first-team All-American, as we mentioned earlier. And so Sports Illustrated uh, towards the end of the season comes out to campus and is taking pictures of you. What, what is that period of your life like just on a daily basis?
0: It was uh, one of those things like, wow, is this really happening? <laughs>
1: it's <laughs> pretty cool. Uh,
0: you know, but I think it's one of those things that comes down to when you want to work for something as hard as you as I did and I cared about something as, as much as I did and I have, um, you know, you kind of want to enjoy it, and then you, you hope that people see uh, what you're doing, whether it's really good or see the work that you put in. And I think it was something where, you know, everything kind of came to fruition towards that end of my senior year where all of my hard work was really beginning to pay off as far as they, any athlete can say they don't care about the media attention or something that, and the other. And I agree once you get to a certain level like LeBron James and Kevin Durant where it's just – it's overwhelming if it's every single day. But no college kid in the right mind wouldn't want to be get notoriety and, and get praise for developing their game and being one of the best uh, players out there in the country. And, and so it kind of really made me feel, I don't want to say vindicated in my transfer, but it made me feel like, you know what? difficult decision that I made to transfer and then all of the hard work and the effort that went into continuing to believe in myself and continuing to work on my game is absolutely paying off and it was a lot of fun. I mean I'm I'm not going to lie to you. Uh it was a lot of fun, but it would have been much different now than it was back then because now you got Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat, all these different things that we didn't have back then. So uh looking back, it was fun, but I can only imagine it would be very difficult
1: now <laughs> for as much fun as it is i'm sure there's also a level of uh i don't know frustration maybe because of the fact that you're that you're this popular especially nationally not to mention on a campus as small as gonzaga's is
0: yeah maybe to a certain extent you know i do know that uh you know there was some times where uh you'd be like is this really happening you know i i'm i'm at dinner, or I'm going to a movie in Spokane with teammates, and people are coming up for autographs. Um, you know, they're we're we're, we're flying uh, to a road trip. Obviously, the we Gonzaga, we flew commercial at the time, and <laughs> myself and a teammate who are checking in our bags together, we get upgraded to first class, and we're sitting in first class, and Coach Spue goes walking by, and he's like, "Hey, what's going on here?" <laughs> you just kind of shake your head, like, "Hey, they upgraded me to first class." What was I, I going to say? No um you know but it's it's kind of one of those things where you know i i think if you try to take it in the right context and enjoy it and know that it's kind of you know to a certain extent it's a reward for all your hard work uh and people are acknowledging your hard work you you got to feel good about it to a certain extent you know i think one of the only times that i really had a negative uh, experience with it would have been uh so after i got drafted in '02, after my senior year uh my wife and i she was my fiance at the time we flew down to atlanta kind of for the initial press conference and kind of get to know the the, the staff and and just kind of check things out down there so we fly back to spokane because it's spokane hoop fest weekend and spokane hoop fest for anybody that doesn't know it, it's the largest three-on-three tournament in the world and you know, there's typically there's around six, 7,000 teams. It takes over all of downtown Spokane. And I'm talking about, you know, there's 55, 60, 70,000 people downtown Spokane just for a basketball tournament. Um, and I was the poster that year. My face was on the, the poster, and, and that's kind of the, the marketing tool they used that year. And so I didn't realize how big Spokane Hoop Fest was. Cause I'd never been to it so we fly back into Spokane and late on a Saturday night and Sunday we're at the event and the whole four or five six hours my wife and I were walking around we had people trailing us uh, hundreds and hundreds of kids asking for autographs and it was the, the first time I was probably truly overwhelmed with everything that was going on uh, and I do remember I ended up meeting with Coach Few and a few other people for for lunch. I finally had a chance to sit down and not. I, I order my food. I'm finally sitting down. I have a chance to finally eat. And a lady comes up to me and asks me for for another autograph. And I had just been signing autographs for hours, and I don't remember this. Uh, but people said I had a look on my face like you got to be kidding me. All I want to do is sit here and eat, um, and so I think I dropped my, I set my burger down and I signed the autograph. And Coach Few, you know, made a made a mention to the lady, did you, could you mind waiting for a few minutes? He just had, finally has had a chance to sit down, and the lady like walked off and was complaining about the fact that I didn't give her whatever amount of time, and and I was just thinking to myself. This is unbelievable. I've just been walking around for four hours signing autographs left and right, and I just wanted the chance to eat a hamburger or whatever it was, and I couldn't even do that. You know, that was probably the pinnacle of my uh, kind of notoriety and kind of people being excited to be, um, you know, uh, kind of have me being a part of an event. Um, But, you know, the good comes with the bad. The good comes with the bad, and you have to understand that, and you have to be able to to learn how to – um say no at times you have to learn how to 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 enjoy it at
1: times because
0: if you weren't good at something nobody would care uh and I think that's something that gets lost with a lot of people
1: right yeah that's that's true and you were certainly good January 19th 2002 the first half against Loyola Marymount you were maybe as good as as anybody in college basketball has has ever been and I know that's a crazy statement, but you scored 34 points in the first half. Nine three-pointers, seven in a row at one point, I think, in a four-minute span. And this was an away game at Loyola Marymount. What do you recollect about about that night?
0: Uh, I remember a lot of things. We lost the night before uh, at Pepperdine. And this was one of those things where this was before there was huge TV money in the West Coast Conference, in particular at Gonzaga. And so we played at Pepperdine the night before, and they were kind of our big rivals in the conference time, and we played bad. I mean, I'm, I'm, we just we turned the ball over. We didn't make stops, We had terrible spacing. We couldn't guard anybody. And I remember I think I had maybe six turnovers that night, and I was just frustrated as all heck because sitting in the front row, there was about eight NBA scouts. I'm thinking to myself, man, I just played a dog of the game. Jerry Krause, GM of the Bulls, was there with DJ Armstrong, Mitch Kupchak, a number of other front office guys. And all I remember is walking off that court that night and walking out of the locker room thinking, man, I can't wait to play them all. Just get rid of this game. Let's just go play again. I'll go play right now if I have to.
1: <laughs>
0: and so I just kind of remember getting to LMU and was like, let's go. Let's go. Let's play. And. Like you said, I, I kind of got hot. That might have been as hot as I've ever felt in a short amount of stretch. And that was one thing Coach D was always so good at: is, is you know what, <laughs> if you're feeling it, go for it. Uh, you know, and he never told me to not to shoot. He never told me uh, not to do certain things. He just kind of basically said, hey, you gotta, if you feel it, go for it, but do it kind of with conviction. You know, don't do anything halfway. And so. Like you said, I got hot, and I just kept it going. And I did have the 34 in the first half, but I think the thing that uh, most people look at me and say, why did you do nothing in the second half? And if you look at it, I don't think I t- took a single shot in the second half. Mm-hmm. And the reason was, was we were killing. We had, I already basically told LMU, forget it. Nothing's happening with you guys. I'm gonna, we're going to beat you guys in the first half. That's essentially what we did, and I didn't take a single shot in the second half. Selfishly, looking back now, I wish I would have gone for – tried to go for 40 or 50 because um, it would have would have been a heck of a story to tell the kid down the road. But I think having 34.5 with nine threes and one half is a pretty good story. And, you know, some of these other Gonzaga players that have come through, you know, in recent times, whether it's Kevin Pangos or some of these other guys, they try to say, oh, but I got the three-point record. I'm like, dude, you did it in 40 minutes. I did it in about 18 <laughs> <laughs> so I like to tell those guys that all the time.
1: What's the most points you ever scored in a game at at any level at any time? What's the most points you ever had in a game?
0: Uh, let's see, NBA. I think my career high was twenty eight. Uh, college would have been thirty nine. Uh, high school would have been forty seven, and then you know what nobody really cares about is is summer league stuff. So Portland area—that's where I grew up. They used to have unbelievable uh, pro am leagues. And when I was in college, I had a game where I think I had about sixty five in summer league um so who was guarding you? hot That's always been um you know the Portland program was awesome back in the day because what they would do was uh they wouldn't allow high school kids, which a lot of uh the program leagues will do now um so it would just be all college players, whether it's n division a division i a division two division one et cetera, um guys from overseas who lived in the Portland area. That were playing professionally in Europe and then there'd be a number of NBA guys you know a lot of the Blazers used to play uh you know I think one of the you know you meant you had the question when did you think you could kind of play uh at a high level you know and I we had talked about at the college level in our in our conversation earlier but I think one of the first times I realized you know what I might be able to do this at the NBA level was when I had a chance to go up against guys like Damon Stodemeyer and Terrell Brandon when I was in college uh, in, in the Portland program. Now I know guys don't play as they get as good a defense and there's different things that happen, but, you know, to be on the floor with them and making different moves and seeing how the game works and, and shifting the defense in different ways, you know, you can kind of quickly tell who has it and who doesn't, who understands the game and who doesn't uh, when you're playing with high level guys. And, and that's something that I learned, you know, playing in the Portland program. That is pretty
1: cool. Alright, so your senior year though ends on a, for as great of a season as you had, it ends on a down note. What do you remember about that that uh, NCAA tournament game first round loss to 11-seeded Wyoming?
0: You know, we played the absolute worst game we could have. Uh, we hadn't played a game like that all year. Um, you know, I think we shot 28% from the field for the game, and we still were in the game and had a chance to win. Uh, it was You know, I think it was a two possession game under a minute to go. And then things happen and you got to get in the foul game. They make free throws. We come down. We can't get a quick bucket. Uh, So you got to turn around and quick foul again. So I think that's why you probably look at the score. I think we ended up losing by nine. Um, You know, but we just couldn't get anything that going that day. Uh, I struggled. I think I was maybe six for 22 from the field. Uh, Blake Stepp, who was one of the, the best teammates I've ever had, best players I've ever played with. He never could seem to get it going in any NCAA tournament, and in particular that one he struggled in as well. Um, and, you know, we didn't feel the the selection committee was fair to us, and maybe we didn't approach – maybe we didn't have the, the best approach as a team. Uh, you know, but looking back, it, it wasn't fair what they did to us, um, and I'll say this forever. You know, we were the sixth ranked team in the country. Mm-hmm. And I don't care what your RPI says. We were probably, you know, at the time, our non-conference probably wasn't what Gonzaga is now. But, you know, we were probably upper teens with our RPI. And we get a sixth seed. Uh, so we get a six seed. And we have to play a conference champion in Wyoming who plays at a gym where it's in the conference that they come from. So they've got plenty of experience uh, playing in that gym, traveling to that uh, city, and it's close to where all their fans can travel to. So we felt we got hit by the, the selection committee in a number of ways that weren't fair. But, you know, I mean, sour grapes are sour grapes. We can think that all we want. Wyoming ended up getting the win. It's probably to this day one of my two most disappointing losses in my basketball career.
1: What's the other one? Uh,
0: it would have been my high school state tournament my junior year or my excuse me my senior year so we were we were rolling um we we were unbelievable uh i think we were ranked second or third in the state going in uh we had won i think 18 of our last 19 games uh we had rolled through the first two rounds um to set up uh the final four game at the kingdom against mercer island and uh, a name a lot of people will remember is Downtown Freddie Brown from the Sonics. Well, his son, Brian Brown, nicknamed Booty, got unbelievably hot and hit six threes in the fourth quarter. And it's not like our team stopped scoring. They just made threes to our twos, and we ended up losing, I think, by six. Um, but that was – that, to be honest with you, was probably the most – those two are the most disappointing losses of my career. Wow.
1: I'll say this about the the Wyoming game. You're absolutely right. If that happens today, uh, people are livid. Uh, It seems like as time has gone on, and and that's one of those memorable seedings that I think has actually changed the way the selection committee looks at teams, how fans view teams, what sparks such interest in bracketology in the weeks and months leading up to the NCAA tournament. That was part of the, the you know the beginning of all that because really what had happened was you you had a team like you said that could be in the the running for a one seed if not a two seed and all of a sudden like you said gets a six seed and plays a team that no way probably should have even been seated 11th or certainly shouldn't have been playing in that gym so mm-hmm. um yeah it's just it's it's crazy to uh, to think back on on how that happened but it probably has changed things moving forward you did have positive news though Obviously, a few months later because you end up getting drafted in the first round. You're selected by the Kings with the 28th pick, traded to the Hawks on draft night. So take me through that night and, and your memories from, from that that day.
0: Well, the pre-draft process is uh, pretty um, intense. Uh, so I ended up moving back to Chicago where I signed with an agent, Mark Barlow, stayed with Priority Sports. Uh, ended up moving back to Chicago and preparing for the, all of the pre-draft workouts. And the reason was is Spokane is a great place to live, but it's not the easiest place to fly out of and get all across the country. So worked out there, was kind of using it as a home base to fly to all these different NBA workouts. Um, and I, in, in total, I believe I had 17 workouts. Um, and so was, there was about a seven-week stretch. I was crisscrossing the country uh, while I called. Chicago my home base for these workouts and so good response from a number of teams and, and we kind of felt there was a few teams that really might pick me uh, kind of in the mid teens or early 20s and anybody who's ever been through the draft process or been involved closely with the draft knows that there's so many different smoke screens going on whether it's mm-hmm. agents whether it's uh, front office GMs or media people trying to get uh, look be looked at as hey the guy in the know that you really don't trust anything and but we did feel comfortable and confident that there was more than likely I was going to be picked I'd say 17 to 24 and so that's kind of where the teams that we zeroed in on targeted in and, and I felt like I had some good workouts with those teams and then every year there's one or two guys that just completely uh, surprises the draft and it kind of throws things off. And for us, that started happening around, I want to say the 11th or 12th pick, a couple guys that, uh, you know, nobody kind of had mock drafted them in those areas. I want to say it was Chris Jeffries and, um, who was at Fresno State, and then Freddie Jones was another one. So mm-hmm. these are kind of wing type players, uh, that kind of shook the draft up a little bit. And then there were some other guards who, who, uh, I was kind of talked about in the same realm. Frank Williams went to New York ahead of me. Juan Dixon went to Washington ahead of me, and so we're starting to get towards the end of that first round and and realize last five or six teams that have draft picks in the first round didn't work me out, and so we're starting to get a little concerned, a little worried because the whole goal is be a first round pick. You've got guaranteed contract, as everybody knows. It's not as easy to to. to Get comfortable in the NBA and many guys Myself included need a little bit of breathing room to really kind of acclimate to the pro game and kind of prove their worth and so We're kind of starting to get really concerned um, Because none of these teams had me in for pre-draft workouts and the one team that kept coming up From about the middle of the first round ish forward that my agent kept calling me on and keep me in the loop was was Atlanta and I told him, Atlanta. Why? What are you talking, Atlanta? I never worked out for Atlanta. Well, they they pinpointed you this the whole time as you were their whatever guy on the board. That if you fell to this certain spot, they were going to do what they could to, to get you because you're their guy. I'm like, well, that's awesome. But they don't have a pick. He's like, well, they're trying to move up. So Atlanta, from what we had been told, was trying to pick up, move up the draft from literally the early twenties all the way but no team would make that trade. And so finally, with the last pick in the first round, Sacramento agreed to draft me for Atlanta and then trade me shortly thereafter. So we had found out maybe 30 minutes before it happened that Atlanta was doing everything they could uh, to to get that draft pick and take me, but we didn't know if it was going to happen. And then about two minutes before David Stern steps up on the podium, I got a phone call from my agent. Hey, look, it's a done deal. Sacramento's picking you for Atlanta. Congratulations. It was one of the most real, one of the most cool experiences I've, I've ever been a part of, but also one of the most nerve-wracking and stressful times. And if, any, if you know me well enough, which I know we know a little bit each other a little bit from broadcasting, I'm pretty low-key guy, and I, I try not to get stressed out about too many things, but uh, that was an interesting afternoon, that's
1: for sure. So when your name is finally announced... What is that moment like?
0: Uh, elation, because all of the hard work that you've put in up until now has been validated. Um, but there's also that PCU. That's like, oh, I'm a pro now. What? What do I do now? What are the next And so, you know, it, there's there's the I made it factor, which you can't let linger for too long it needs to turn into i'm here how do i last kind of factor and i think the guys that um you know turn that switch sooner have success earlier in their careers but everybody's career has a different arc as far as you know maximizing potential the ability to get to your potential sooner rather than later and then the the ability to stay at that potential as long as possible you know and then looking at my career i mean six years, six full years with a couple of the injuries that I had, you know, I, I I can truly say I was blessed. Would I like to have had another year or two? Absolutely. Without a doubt. I don't think any player in their right mind would say no. Um, it's only, there's only very few people that can pick and choose when they're done. Most of the time it's the contract offers dry up.
1: All right. But forget the end of your career, the beginning of your career, what was your welcome to the NBA moment?
0: Um, Welcome to the NBA moments. You know, I think my first uh, basket in the NBA was at New Jersey, and it was a lefty runner uh, in the lane. I think it was I got by Jason Kidd, and and the weak side defense was a little bit late rotating, and I got it up over the top of the defense and made it. And I can just remember thinking to myself, holy cow, I just scored in the NBA. (laughs) Just (laughs) jogging back on defense. I think I only played maybe you know, six or seven minutes that game. I think I played about three or four minutes in each half. Uh, but nobody ever forgets their first bucket.
1: That is that is very cool. Wow. Um, you end up having a career in which you talked about, you had some injuries, you play six years in the NBA, uh, and you're bouncing, bouncing around the league. But statistically, your best NBA years with the New Orleans Hornets Uh, In the 2004-2005 season, you'd played four games with the Mavs in 2004. Then you end up traded to New Orleans, and you averaged 13 points a game with the Hornets. What's it like to be in a rhythm and really starting to play your game at the NBA level?
0: Uh, You know, to be honest with you at the time, it's kind of one of those things like, what I didn't need to do to prepare the next night. You know, I had prepared and prepared and prepared so that when my opportunity came, I was ready to make the most of it. And I didn't want to change my mindset anymore it, it, at all. I, I wanted to continue to keep preparing. I mean, yeah, there was, you know, phone calls from friends or family like, Hey, you're killing it. You're playing well. And my whole thing was like, I need to block out all that noise. I need to, to, <laughs> I want to have a long career. I want to, you know, extend this as, as well as i can and so you know i i stayed true to the process of what got me to you know college and then got me to the nba um was just the preparation and the daily grind of you know what next play you know what next workout you know what next game uh and so i think that's one thing that really helped me during the course of that season
1: what was your favorite and least favorite parts of playing in the league
0: Hmm. You know, I think favorite parts is as a kid, you you set an amazingly high-level goal of playing in the NBA. And when you get there, you know, it's like you you don't want to take it for granted, but you also don't want to be in awe either. Um, But I think the biggest thing about that is you're playing with and against and are considered one of the best players in the world. and at the end of the day, you know, in a few years after being done playing, now you can, I can sit back and look at it and say, you know what, that's pretty crazy I was able to do that. You know, I, I can look back at my career and I can, I can say this was a straight face to anybody. At the peak of my career, I was probably one of the 10 best shooters in the world. And I mean, that I take a lot of pride in that. I mean, I I, I think that's pretty cool to be able to say. You know, I think the worst thing, I think the thing that people don't understand and realize about professional sports too much is that it is a business. And I was made aware of that a number of times in my career when I was traded. Um, and, you know, you look at it like, hey, that's that's you got traded, no big deal. Well, when you got family and when you start having kids and you got to start, you know, uh, sweetie, I got traded. Uh, you got traded, what? Yeah, when? uh just an hour ago? What does that mean? Well I'm on a plane later tonight. Uh you can't come tonight. You've got to pack up the house and, and this is what you gotta do and I'll see you in a few days. That's not easy. Um that's not easy at all. Um and so I think, you know, I mean yeah you do get paid a, a very nice uh amount of money and the money now is even better than it was ten years ago. But it doesn't replace the uh, the the fact that sometimes Players are treated as a asset or a number, as opposed to a real person.
1: Right, right, which we see all too all too often. I know one great experience that you talked to me about was a celebrity encounter you had when you were playing with the Celtics um, when you met Will Ferrell. Can you tell that story? <laughs>
0: uh, yeah, Will Ferrell. Uh, that was a that, that was a great memory. So. Uh, when I was with the Celtics, we were playing Charlotte, um, the Bobcats down in Charlotte. And it was when uh, Will Ferrell was was uh, filming Talladega Nights. And so Will Ferrell sitting uh, directly across from the Celtics bench in the front row. And, you know, I, I, I'm not starting for the Celtics, so, you know, usually I understand I'm going to go in about the maybe three-minute mark in the first quarter or so. So I sit down, I look across the, the the court and I'm like, oh my gosh, it's Will Ferrell. And somehow I get his attention and I'm like, it's hey, Will Ferrell. And he like looks back at me, waves or does something. And then I, just out of the blue, I was like, pointing, point to like his my head and like motion to his hat and he kind of looks at me like, what are you talking about? So I call over the ball boy and I'm like, hey, go ask Will Ferrell if, if he'll sign his hat and give it give it to me. So over the course of the 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 next quarter or whatever the ball boy is going back and forth between will ferrell and myself uh asking i'm asking for the hat and he's like no no no, you can't have my hat i was like can i have your hat can you sign it for me can i have your hat because i think that would be a heck of a story to be able to show you know friends of mine so he ends up (laughs) the the way he left it at was i will give you my hat and i'll sign it if you come out with us after the game and, and go hang out and we'll, we'll go to the bars in Charlotte. And <laughs> I, I would have had to miss a team flight. It probably would have been a $10,000 fine. I had to find my own way home the next morning from Charlotte to Boston or wherever we were at at the road. But looking back, I probably should have taken it because it would have been $10,000 worth of stories with Will Ferrell, I'm sure.
1: That is true. That is true. Yeah, you missed out. But that also would have been a very expensive hat. So It
0: would have been. <laughs>
1: Yeah, that is that's remarkable. I bet he's now telling that story like you tell the story of the woman at the uh 3 on 3 tournament like, "Oh, I'll tell you the height of my fame. Basketball players playing in the NBA were asking me for my hat mid-game." So, um <laughs> yeah. So when you finally then you you alluded to it, but when you finally have to give it up and, you know, the game ends, you, you played overseas and and then um there's, uh, you know, the D league, but, but when it's finally time to just call it quits, when did you know that the, your career was, was over?
0: Sure. You know, I mean, if somebody offered me a contract now and it made sense for myself and my family, I'll get back in shape. I mean, that's one of the reasons I played in the, the tournament this summer, uh, kind of back in my head, but, you know, I, I think after, you know, my opportunities in Europe didn't go as well as hopes, and it was because of injuries. Um, you know, my value in Europe uh, contractually was kind of killed uh, because, you know, they looked at, you know, if you're an American you go over there and get hurt, uh, we don't want you. Um, if you're an American and you go over there and we don't win, we don't want you. And so that was kind of the case with me there. And then, you know, I finish up in the D League the very next year just for – You know, a 20-game stint. I had another injury, and I kind of had the the whole thought process of, you know what, let's get healthy. Let's see what options come in uh, over the summer. And there was an option for me maybe to go play down in Australia in the ABL that held a lot of uh, interest to me. You know, it was somewhere I felt like my family and I would be comfortable. You know, at at the 11th hour, they ended up offering a contract to somebody else And at that point, I kind of had that thought in my head, like, you know what, I think I'm done. I just don't, I I think I'm done, and I need to look at what's next. And I had slowly started doing some broadcasting stuff on the side, and I slowly started, you know, thinking about coaching, what I want to coach. And during that time, an opportunity came uh, to join the Portland Trailblazers staff as a a player development coach. and so I had a, a verbal agreement, a handshake agreement that I would go on their staff when the uh lockout season and when the lockout ended. Um and so I kinda got my foot wet in the on the broadcasting side doing some stuff for Gonzaga and then the lockout ended and I shuffled over uh to be on the staff with the Blazers and you know, looking back, do I wish I would have given it one run? you can always say that, but at the same time, you know what, I wouldn't have got my feet wet in both the coaching and the broadcasting side of things within within the same year. Uh, and so now I can say with a, uh, you know, clear conscience that, you know, I've done everything, I've done most everything in the game of basketball and I feel very confident and I feel very comfortable, uh, you know, with the path that I've taken kind of moving into the broadcasting realm is something uh, that's becoming a big part of who I am.
1: How difficult was it to just stop playing at that level?
0: It's very difficult because it's something that you do every single day of your life growing up. and I mean, I'm not kidding you when I say um, I had to maximize nearly every day to have success at that level and then to have the longevity that I had. I had to think about it religiously all day long, you know. Um, Other guys could take, you know three months off in the summer and get ready for training camp in in a couple weeks. I couldn't do that. You know, I was always constantly worried. Like, is someone going to be in better shape than me? Is somebody going to, you know, take advantage of this opportunity if I take a day off? And so, you know, I didn't take enough. I I took very few days off. Um, And it's something that I take a lot of pride in in my preparation, but also take, I also can take it at the, at the angle, like, you know what? Maybe I should have taken a day or two off more and not had the approach that I had. But then you look, you take another step back and you're like, but that's why I was able to make it uh, to the college level and have success. That's why I was able to get to the NBA and have a fair amount of success. Um, so, you know, would I have loved to have played a little bit longer? Yeah, but it wasn't in the cards.
1: If you were to advise a high school kid who's – getting a lot of attention from colleges and seems to be a really good player about what the next chapter is going to hold, you know, at the college level beyond whatever the case may be, obviously open book. But what kind of advice would you would you give to a kid that, that is showing promise at the high school level?
0: Uh, you know, I think one of the things you really got to do is do your homework as far as coaching staff style of play. Um, every coach that's gonna recruit you uh, is gonna say what you wanna hear, but you need to kinda look at really see the style of play that they have. You know, if they're if if you're very athletic in the open floor and you're good getting up and down the floor and you're gonna play in a slowdown and the school that's recruiting you is in a slowdown style, it's probably not for you. You know, if if you're a great shooter, um you probably wanna look for for a program with a coaching style that uh emphasizes the ability to to, uh, free up three-point shooters and give guys the freedom to shoot a lot of three-point shots. You know, if you're a big, are you going to be emphasized on the low block or are you going to be asked to be uh, strictly a pick-and-pop type guy or a screen-and-dive guy? You know, you got to kind of really look at it in depth of, like, uh, where will I fit basketball-wise? But I think the other thing is, You also have to look at the staff that's recruiting you and think with all the turnover that goes on in college basketball these days, is this staff gonna be here for four years if I'm here for four years? Mm -hmm. Uh, And if not, is it still a school that I wanna go to and I wanna be at? You know, I think that's one of the things that I learned. University of Washington is a great school, but unfortunately it wasn't for me. It was too big, 40,000 students. I got lost in the shuffle. I wanted a smaller setting. Uh, for my college experience, so you kind of also got to look at that too,
1: yeah, well, we're all so glad that you ended up transferring i can't imagine how difficult that that time was, but we got a chance to see D- Dan dick out at his at his very best before I let you go, Dan, last question for you is just for people i mean i I get to see it, and I get to know it to a certain extent. but what's life like for you now?
0: Life is busy um <laughs> Married with five kids in Spokane, uh, doing the broadcasting thing like we've mentioned for Gonzaga as well as Pac 12 networks that I do a little bit on Westwood One Radio uh, for the college basketball season as well. But then I own a couple barber shops here in Spokane. I don't cut hair, I just, I'm the owner. Um, they're called the Barbers. So if you're ever in Spokane, Washington, come check us out. And then I started working with a uh, very unique startup company uh, about. Eight nine months ago it's called scorebooklive.com uh, essentially we're a sports technology and media company that is bringing uh, high school sports which is our prim- primary market into real-time so most sports fans are used to getting their information and their scores in real-time for NBA and NCAA um, we're bringing the ability to do that at the high school level through the use of uh, apps um currently we've got our, our our first product um we're moving into year two with our basketball app and if things continue to go well we've got uh thoughts and ideas to expand to a couple different sports as well
1: well i can't thank you enough for jumping on the podcast today i'm excited with all that you've got going on in your life and um you know people can listen to you on the back 12 network on westwood one and, uh, you know, occasionally, like I said, showing up in the in the basketball tournament in one capacity or another. So, Dan Dickow, thanks for all these stories all the time. Really appreciate it having you on. This was a lot of fun.
0: Absolutely. I had a blast, and I uh, look forward to seeing you down there at uh, Pac-12 Studios soon.
1: Sounds good. Sounds good. Thanks, Dan. So that's Dan Dickow. Really had a blast talking basketball with him and going through his entire career. On Twitter, you can find Dan Dickow at Dan Dickow, D A N D I C K A U 21. That's at Dan Dickow21 on Twitter. I'm Adam Stanko. You can find me on Twitter at Naismith lives And you can find this podcast on Twitter at Great Boy Pod. And like we said off the top, remember to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you're listening to this podcast. That'll do it for us. And we'll catch you next time.